Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you're listening to a little bit of our, what I like to call, life lessons with Archbishop Sheen. And I say life lessons because he has taught me uh, so many great, uh, valuable lessons, um, how to deal with difficult people how to overcome the seven deadly sins, how to practice virtue, uh, how to fall in love with the Blessed Virgin Mary. All of these are lessons that Archbishop Sheen has taught, not just myself, but so many others over the years. And today he will teach us a few other lessons, um, valuable lessons. And uh, he'll be giving a talk on the compassion for human life. And uh, of course, in today's world, the issue of life is uh, very much in front of us, So, uh, and we need to have compassion for human life, and so uh, Fulton Sheen will impart his wisdom with us today. And he'll also share about the faith. Uh, he'll be giving us a catechism lesson, and today's lesson is on the church, the body of Christ, and how uh, we are one body, and uh, we all need each other. And of course, we know of the church militant, the church suffering, and the church triumphant, and how they all work together. But still, again, it's nice to have a good teacher uh, guiding us along. And so, my dear friends, uh, please enjoy this first reflection uh, by Archbishop Sheen uh, from his television series, Life is Worth Living, as he explains to us the compassion that we need for human life. Please enjoy. Friends, two of the noblest professions in the world are those of nursing and doctoring. Of course, they have their trials. I know of one little boy who was listening to all kinds of television shows, reading detective stories, and particularly those crime stories on television, dumb, de dum dumb. <laughs> And he had an earache, and his mother took him to the doctor. And the doctor said, uh, which ear is aching, Sonny? He said, that's for you to find out. I'm no stool pigeon. <laughs> and then, of course, the psychiatrists have their own. Very often when people go in to see a psychiatrist, they think they're crazy, and when they come out, they think the psychiatrist is crazy. <laughs> I think Irving Cobb once said that a man reaches middle age when he begins to exchange his emotions for symptoms. 
Well, whatever be the characteristic of middle age, may we more seriously tell you, first of all, the characteristics of a good nurse and then of a good doctor. A nurse, if she is to be truly noble, must have three things. They're going to be mad at me for the first one. They're going to be all cut up. The first... Every nurse should have an incision. <laughs> Second, she should have cheerfulness. And thirdly, a sense of the invisible. First of all, she should have an incision. Why? In order that she might properly appreciate pain. Now, it isn't necessary, of course, for every nurse to have a physical incision. Probably a mental incision would do just as well, so long as she appreciates the sufferings of others. It's easy enough to communicate ideas. For example, I can communicate to you the idea that two and two make four. But you cannot communicate a toothache. If one is to know what a toothache is, one must have and that is the great advantage of having gone through pain. One can appreciate the suffering of others. There's a world of difference between pity and compassion. Pity is an aristocratic virtue. It looks down on others. Compassion is a democratic virtue. It shares suffering and pain and feels it as its own. There will then be no professional coolness in the nurses, but an entering into, if possible, the agony and the pain and the fevers of others. That will be a first characteristic, and then a second characteristic will be cheer. There is nothing that so much contributes to the longevity of sickness as the long face of a nurse. It's so easy to come into a sick room with a smile. Some of them come in with needles, you'd think they were looking for targets. <laughs> they have to do, of course, a number of unpleasant things. One thing I never can understand why they have to do, and that is to wake you up at 4.30 in the morning to wash your face. <laughs> Some of them will shake you at four o'clock in the morning and say, did you sleep well? <laughs> and one of the reasons for, for cheerfulness is, of course, in order to really to help the patient. It's so easy to be kind to others and full of gladsomeness. Tolstoy tells the story of a shoemaker who was on his way home one day in St. Petersburg, and he passed the church door, and he saw a beggar in the church doorway, and he invited him to his home. And when he sat him down to table, whenever the wife complained and growled that the husband had brought home this stranger, the stranger's face seemed to wrinkle, and he got older and older. And whenever the wife was kind to him and offered him food, he became much younger, almost like a child. 
It developed that the stranger was an angel and could live only in the atmosphere of kindness. And that's the only way that patients can ever live, too, in an atmosphere of good cheer. Now, you take my own angel. When I pay his dues in theatrical union number one, <laughs> he almost gets so small and so youthful and so cherubic that he can hardly fly. <laughs> And then a, uh, a nurse to, if I have time, I do not know whether I will have time to develop all of these points. I might also add, though, that she has the sense of the invisible. By the sense of the invisible is meant that a real nurse will try to gain merit out of her profession. It's one of the easiest professions in the world to do good. And when one sees the sick, from a truly religious point of view, it will not be just a patient in room 204. Our blessed Lord said, I was sick, and you visited me. I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. And on the last day, the just, the nurses, the good nurses will say, When? When? When did we see you hungry and give you to eat? When thirsty did we give you to drink? When sick did we visit you? And he will say, When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Every fevered brow will be seen as a brow that was crowned with thorns and every aching hand will seem to the nurse as one that has been pierced with nails. And every wounded foot will be one that was riven with steel. And every aching heart will be one that knew the unkind kiss of a lance. Then there's merit in it. Then it is a noble calling. And then they will understand who their patron is, the founder of the Red Cross, of the real Red Cross, Camillus, Camillus of Lelis, born around 1550, developed a hospital system, one of the first ones to develop field ambulances, always sick and yet he cared for the sick all of his life, founded a congregation of the sick. When he was born, his mother had a vision of her child. The child had a Red Cross on his breast. And there were children following her own child. And she thought that that meant that her child was to be a bandit. And these children were seeking his execution. Later on it developed that he was to found the real Red Cross, one with faith in it. He went back and discovered that Constantine, who saw the cross in the sky, also founded the Knights of the Cross. And all the Crusaders in their great mission bore a Red Cross on their cloaks. When he founded his community, he put a red cross on each of them, reminded them that they were to mortify themselves as their Savior mortified himself. One day he was afraid that possibly his organization was failing, and the Lord spoke to him and said, Coward, go ahead. This is my work. <laughs> <laughs> 
not thine. May all who follow that noble profession understand the meaning of the Red Cross. Red, because it sacrificed born of the love of God and the cross. Because it is love, the love of the Savior. And if that be the nobility of nursing, then a word about doctors and their great calling, too. Doctors need not have incisions, but a doctor should have, first of all, reverence for personality. Personality, not individuality. There's a world of difference between personality and individuality. For example, this piece of chalk is an individual piece of chalk, but it is not a person. You go to the grocery store and buy oranges, you say, this is a bad one, give me another one. A tube gives out in your radio set, you buy another tube. Unless you have an admiral, then you don't have to buy one. <laughs> So individuals are replaceable. An individual is instrumental. An individual is only a means to an end. But a person is irreplaceable. Unique. No one in all the world can take the place of your mother. No one can ever substitute for any other person in the world. And a doctor treats persons. And a person is sacred. Sacred, first of all, because his body is a temple. Then it is a soul, a soul that came from God. And that soul, and this whole personality is worth more than the created universe. What doth it profit a man to gain the whole world? Lose his soul. And that soul, too, was redeemed by the precious blood of the Savior. And therefore, every single person in the world is sacred. And the dignity of the medical profession is that it deals with God's noblest creatures to relieve, as far in as is possible, the heritages and the effect of sin which is pain, and which is disease. Therefore, a doctor, a good doctor, will always be opposed to this idea that was introduced by the Nazis. A terrible idea. It was called merciful killing. To say that killing is merciful is just like speaking of honest thievery. <laughs> Virtuous rape. Hilarious income tax. <laughs> yeah. 
It's a contradiction in terms. In 1936, Hitler decided to introduce this idea into Germany. And, of course, people like that never introduce ideas of that kind without always covering it up with some very high-sounding charitable name. And he called it a charitable organization for the institutional. And he asked that all of those who could not be a benefit to society would be killed. There was some protest. Do you know how many were killed by Hitler? This does not include the non-Aryans. He killed, until the outbreak of the war, 275,000 people. Once the door was opened for destroying the sanctity of a single personality, then you had this slaughter. Merciful killing, he called it. You know what it is? It's suicide plus murder. He combined within himself two of the most awful crimes that humanity knows. The crime of Judas and also the crime of Cain. The doctors naturally rebelled against this idea, as all doctors in our own country would also rebel against it. And they would do so simply because they knew that there must never be any kind of legalized taking of a life. They say that this is justified on the ground that, well, happiness and suffering are incompatible. They are not incompatible. In some individuals, happiness and suffering are incompatible. But I have known some suffering people who are very happy. I think one of the happiest persons I ever met in my life was a leper woman in the Caribbean. As soon as I shook hands with her, full of radiant joy, I said, you're very happy. She said, there isn't a happier person in the world. Now, when people have nothing to live for, when they've forgotten their destiny and their real worth, then sometimes happiness and suffering are incompatible. Suffering can be a purgation. And then they say, well, this crime of Hitler is justified on the ground that these people are no longer useful to society. No longer useful and how about our veterans in Korea that have lost their arms and their legs? Are they not useful to society? Are they not giving us examples of heroism? For what are they fought? Oh, they come back with stumps. They are reminding us that there are some things that are very precious in life and one must suffer for them. And then once we begin taking a life simply because we say that it is not useful to the state, then we'll begin to take the lives of this person and that, saying that his ideas are opposed to our own. This crime that was introduced by Hitler has shocked the doctors of the world. 
And they would never bow down to it, particularly those who have taken, and almost all of them have, that oath of Hippocrates. Remember, Hippocrates lived in the 5th century before Christ. Think of it. Now, see how idealistic was this great physician. This is the oath that is taken in many medical schools. I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrongdoing. Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Similarly, I will not give to a woman a means to cause abortion, but I will keep pure and holy both in my life and in my art. I will not use the knife, not even verily on sufferers from stone, but I will give place to such as are craftsmen therein. Into whatsoever house I will enter to help the sick, I will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm, especially from abusing the bodies of man or woman, bond or free. And whatsoever I shall hear or see in the course of my profession, as well as outside of my profession, in my intercourse with men, if it be what should not be published abroad, I will never divulge, holding such things to be holy secrets. Now, if I carry out this oath and break it not, may I gain forever reputation among all men for my life and for my art. But if I transgress it and forswear myself, may the opposite befall me. That's the physician five centuries before Christ. May it be the motto of those who have inherited the great Christian tradition. And then in addition to that, we might also say that the doctor is to practice personalized medicine. That is in contrast to socialized medicine. Personalized medicine. There's a world of difference between nature and humanity. Nature is concerned only with species. The individuals may perish. Humanity is concerned with persons, not with species. And thousands of ants perish. What is important according to nature is that the species survive. Hitler took over this idea and he says that what is important is that the Germanic race survive. And the individuals outside of that race are unimportant. The species alone matters. Lenin and Stalin and Malenkov have taken it too, and they have said that what is important is the class. And all individuals outside of the revolutionary class are to be liquidated. They are saying that what is important only is social health, not personal health. That is not true. Social health is conditioned only upon individual health. And if a doctor would leave any patient simply because he could not pay for his care, or because he was apparently incurable, or for any other reason, in order to serve the abstract claims of society, he would be selling the past. Therefore, may the doctors realize that the greatest of all professions, one that was sanctified by our blessed Lord, Luke, who wrote the third gospel, was a physician, And Luke, describing the message of our blessed Lord, said that he sent out 
his apostles to preach and to heal. It was interesting that Luke, who always used medical terms such as for the needle, he used the word baloney, meaning surgical needle, while the others used raffis, which only meant a sewing needle. It is interesting that Luke, the physician, should set that down. He meant that those who are preaching the word of God and that those who are caring for bodies are about the only professions now that are left in the world that care for persons. This is how democracy survives, by recognizing the worth of personalities. And may these two professions always be comrades in arms, marching together for the health of soul and body of persons. Some years ago, when I was in the Orient, I noticed that camels were always burdened when they were on their knees. That is to say, they took their burdens on their knees. That might not be a bad idea for us to take our burdens on our knees. Bye now. God love you. You are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity that we have each week to learn our faith together and to be encouraged by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Great words of wisdom on human life and uh, how we need to respect human life from conception to natural death, and so uh, it is a fight that we have to take up every day. And, you know, I think we need to uh, take some lessons from uh, the many books that Archbishop Sheen wrote. And, um, again, they're all available to us. Um, I think uh, when I look at the resources that have been made uh, in so many languages uh, over the years, um, I know my friends in Poland have told me that uh, more and more books are being translated into Polish of from Archbishop Sheen's a vast selection of books, um, and of course, uh, here in America, and of course in Canada, and uh, English-speaking, uh, you know, Australia, the Philippines, the United Kingdom, uh, that, uh, <laughs> I want to say that bookstore called Amazon has uh, so many um, uh, Fulton Sheen books available to purchase, and so uh, I always say that everyone needs a few good Fulton Sheen books in their own personal library, so uh, maybe you'll want to put that on your wish list uh, over the next few months to pick pick up uh, a Fulton Sheen book or two. Uh, I know I've done my fair share of uh, reprinting a number of old Fulton Sheen books. Um, we saw that many of them hadn't been republished in 70 or 80 years, and so uh, with the help of my good friends at Sophia Institute Press, we were able to re- uh, publish a number of Sheen's classic writings. So, uh, again, they're available for purchase. So, again, for everything Fulton Sheen, I, I cannot recommend him enough. All right, uh, and if you're looking for a complete listing of Sheen's books, please visit our website. It's uh, simply titled bishopsheentoday.com, and there is hundreds of audios, uh, um, the MP3 files, videos, 
and a list of his many books and where you can purchase them. So uh, there's a little tab that says best-selling books and uh, you'll see quite the selection. But again, the website bishopsheentoday.com. All right, it's time for our catechism lesson. And so uh, Bishop Sheen will be teaching us about the church, the body of Christ. And so I ask you just to sit back now and enjoy this catechism lesson from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. After having reviewed the life of our blessed Lord and also his revelation of himself as the Son of God, and also his bond to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. We now come to the subject of the church. What do you think of when you first hear the word church? An institution? An organization? A kind of an administrative body? Well, you are to be very much excused if you think of it that way, because it's partly our own fault. It is the way we have too often presented the church. Now we will talk about the church in other words, namely in terms of the people of God and as the mystical body of Christ. As we look at history as revealed in the Bible, not as the inspired word of God as yet, but as an historical record, we find that it is God that is always in search of man. It is not man in search of God. Man does seek God, but not with the same intensity with which God seeks man. Just think of how much the thought of man and the love of man is in the mind and heart of God. What is the first reflex thought that we find in sacred scripture of God? Not the first description of him creating the world, but the first thought that he has about himself and within himself. You would almost guess that, well, his first thought would be about his life and his truth and his love. And yet, that is not the first thought in Scripture. Open Genesis and you will find it. God's first thought about himself is, let us make man. Think of it. as if God could not exist without man. God does not need man to complete himself, to fulfill a need. But he needs man as a kind of uh, a gift. That is to say, he must have someone to whom he can show his love. Therefore, the first monologue that we touch in sacred scripture is the monologue of God thinking about man. What are the first dialogues in Scripture? The first question in Scripture is God saying to man, Adam, where art thou? 
Man, why are you hiding? Why do you run from me? And the next dialogue is about the neighbor. God says to Cain, Where is thy brother, Abel? God is immersed in the thought of man. And here we find the first two laws, really, of God, love of God and love of neighbor, in the two questions, man, where art thou? Where is thy brother? Now, this was at the beginning of humanity. And we find, therefore, that humanity receives a call from God to intimate communion with himself. God will not let man go. But how does he deal with humanity when humanity begins to multiply? In this way, out of all of the peoples of the world, he chooses one people who are to be what he calls his people. And this group, this corporation, this special people, are to be the means of bringing salvation to everyone else in the world. Now, who were his people? His people were the people of Israel. And he called them first through Abraham, and he governed them through Moses. He ruled them through the judges and the kings. He threatened, he pleaded, he coaxed, he warned, he loved through the prophets. And over and over in the Old Testament, we find that God who loves humanity deals with them through this particular group. And in his own words, God says in the book of Exodus, You shall be my peculiar possession above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. Again, God speaks and says, You shall be my people, and I shall be your God. And through the centuries, these facts stand out. God has a special name for his people. He calls them in Hebrew a kahal. We will often use that word. It means... God's elect, his chosen ones, Israel. The word is used about 200 times in the Old Testament. Later on, when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, that word kahal was translated by ecclesia. Ecclesia in Greek means church. We get the word ecclesiastical from it. Hence, whenever you hear the word kahal, or people of God, you may think of it in Greek as ecclesia, or in English as church. That's the first point. Secondly, God always dealt with his people through one man whom he appointed as head and as representative. Abraham at one time, 
Isaac another, Jacob, Moses, kings and prophets. And thirdly, because Israel was his people, he made a treaty with them, a pact, a covenant, and agreement. This involved mutual obligations. The Hebrew word for covenant is berith. You've often heard that word. It appears 275 times in the scripture. And berith means that they owed something to God, and God in his turn would bless them. And as he said, above all the nations of the earth they would be blessed. Israel was therefore to be his witness that God had placed them in the world, that the plan that he had for the salvation of all mankind would be affected through them. And finally, you heard this when we spoke about all of the prophecies concerning our blessed Lord, and finally, that the fulfillment would come the day that Christ himself would appear. This would be the perfection of all of the prophets. This is why the people of God were chosen to be the vehicle, to be the seed out of which redemption would come to the world. Then finally, one day, when the fullness of time came, Christ did appear. And when he appeared, there was fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Or rather, Ezekiel it was, who said, I myself will seek my sheep. And I will visit them. So now God appears in the form of human nature takes upon himself the form of a man. One day, the beautiful woman, a virgin, brought a child to an old man. It was in the temple of Jerusalem. The old man's name was Simeon. He had often said a prayer, a prayer that many Jews were saying in those days because they knew that the time was near for the coming of the Messiah. We already mentioned that Herod, who was not a Jew but an Edomite, was not surprised when the wise man came. He said he would bring gifts, but the gift that he promised to bring was the sword. Now there are some flowers that open only in the evening. Simeon, the old man, was one of those flowers. And imagine the ecstasy of this old man when he embraced this child. And his first words were, Now I'm ready to die. This is the end. This is all I've lived for. And he speaks to the mother. And he says, now notice how he speaks of Israel and the Gentiles. Remember that we said that 
the people of God were to be a light to all the nations of the world. Now Simeon looks backwards and forwards. He looks backwards to the people of God of which he was a priest. And he says, this is the glory of thy people Israel, this babe. Then he looks forward. This is the light which shall give revelation to the Gentiles. In other words, he saw in this babe the maker of a new covenant, founder of a new kahal, He also saw in him a sign to be contradicted by the very people to whom he came to bring salvation. So that this Christ who was born was not, as you see, just someone who came by surprise. He's related to all of the people of God through the centuries. And if you pick up the Gospels and read the two genealogies of our blessed Lord, you will find that in one instance... The genealogy of our blessed Lord goes back to Abraham. And another genealogy goes back to Adam. What does this mean? It means that this new head of the Kahal, this expectant of the nations, this God-made man, this Christ, is related to the people of God were to be the instrument of the salvation of the world. When then in sacred scripture you come to a hearing about our blessed Lord founding a church or a kahal or a people of God, you must not think that this is an innovation. Everything that our Lord is saying is related to this people of God in the Old Testament. And see how he sustains that relationship. First of all, he chooses twelve apostles. It is very likely that they were even related to the twelve tribes in some way. Now to those twelve tribes, or rather those twelve apostles representative of twelve tribes, he chose one as his representative. We will find out his, his name later. Looking back on the old law, he also said, I came not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. So he gathers these new people around himself in order to renovate and revivify Israel, to make a new Israel. And if the old Israel would reject him, he would not eventually reject Israel. Prophet Hosea in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament says that we of the new Kahal, we the new people of God, are only a branch that is grafted on to the tree. We are not the root. Israel is the root. St. Paul foretells a day when the root will be glorified. In other words, it will surpass the Gentiles in glory when Israel returns. When our Lord does come to use the word kahal, he calls it my kahal. 
I will found my church, my people. And the bond that Christ establishes with this new kahal is not a bond of uh, not a bond of law. It's a bond of love. And the very best moment for establishing this bond was, of course, a banquet where his twelve sat about him in love. Just as Moses often sprinkled blood upon the people as a sign of covenant, so he said he will make a new covenant, a new pact, a new testament. There will not be the sprinkling of the blood of goats and bullocks and sheep. He gave his own blood and said, This is the blood of the new covenant, the new testament, the new pact. This is the bond that will unite all of my people together. Now do you see that the church is not an institution? Maybe you've often said, I do not want an institution standing between God and me. Well, that's right. After all, you have a right to communication with God. But the church is not that kind of an institution standing between you and God. Israel was not between the world and God. Think of the church in somewhat the fashion of a body. Do you ever say, for example, as you listen to me, I do not want your lips and your eyes and your hands and so forth standing between me and you? After all, how can I communicate anything to you? Except by something visible and tangible and and carnal? Anything visible that you see about me or will ever see about me is nothing but a sign of an invisible soul. The carnal is the token of the spiritual. So when our blessed Lord came to this earth, and took upon himself a human body, you would not say, I do not want this body of Christ standing between me and my love of Christ? Why, that's the only way of the incarnation, namely to communicate the divine through the human. This human nature of our blessed Lord, this body of his, was the instrument of his divinity. When therefore our blessed Lord came as priest and as prophet and as king. Everything he did was done through the power and the means of this human nature. If you heard our blessed Lord speak on the shores of Galilee, you would not say, oh, it's only a human tongue that is speaking. He said to you, I am the truth. You say, how do I know God is speaking to me? That's why he became man. If he said to you, I forgive your sins, would you say, all I see is a lifted hand and the movement of lips? No, his body was the means by which he made himself applicable to us. Therefore, the best way to understand that the church is not just an institution is to understand it somewhat in the fashion of the body of Christ. And that's the way that St. Paul understood the church. 
And that's the way we have it in sacred scripture. Our blessed Lord all through the Gospels is saying that he's going to establish a new body, a new car, new people of God. After all, when people are united for a given purpose, they are a body. Now, our Lord did not use the word body precisely because his own physical body was before everyone. He used the word kingdom because that was a word that the Jews could understand. But when St. Paul was talking to the pagans, he had to use a word which was more understandable by them, namely the body. But our Lord communicated exactly the same idea. He said that that the new people that he would communicate and unite with himself would be related to him as branches and vines. He said, you are the branches. I am the vine. And the truth that he had, he said he would give to them. My truth I give to you. My power I give you. And also he communicated the power to forgive sins. So our blessed Lord said that he would develop and form a new body, which would be very small at first, like a mustard seed, and then grow and spread throughout the entire world. But what was the nucleus of this body? Well, we've already hinted at that. nucleus, raw material of this new body was the apostles. Now just as my own human body, for example, is made up of millions and millions of cells, and yet it is one because vivified by one soul governed by an invisible mind, presided over by a visible head, so all who later on will be incorporated into this new body of Christ will be one, because vivified by one soul, the Holy Spirit, governed by an invisible mind, Christ in heaven, and presided over by a visible head, namely the one whom Christ chose at the beginning to bear the keys of his kingdom. Therefore, this body of Christ was to be the prolongation of his incarnation. Our Lord was to grow and expand, very much like a cell. We sometimes think that a church is formed by all of us coming together and saying, oh, let's get together and form a church just like we form a tennis club. That's not the way the body of Christ was formed. People of God were not formed that particular way. God's power was in the midst of his people. Even your human body, when it began to be, was not formed that particular way. It was formed from, from cells of life. And those cells expanded outward. So this body of Christ doesn't grow like a house grows by the addition of brick to brick and door to door and wall to wall. It grows like a cell. First there is this divine life that came to this earth, namely God in man.
starts with this humanity of Christ, this body of his. Now he says he's going to form this new body. It will not be a, a moral body or a political body, so he has to give it a new name. And the name that has been given to it through the centuries is mystical to indicate that the unity that binds it together does not come from men. It comes from his spirit, from himself. That was why there had to be a Pentecost. Put a soul into this body. We will see a little later. Now these twelve apostles that our Lord gathered to himself were very much like the chemicals in a laboratory. They were very individualistic. They were very much like, as I say, the hydrogen and phosphates and sulfur in, in a laboratory. In fact, we have in a laboratory 100% of all the chemicals that enter into the constitution of a baby. Why can we not make a baby? Because we lack that vivifying, unifying power, which is a soul. So the apostles, disparate, disconnected, disjointed, they could not form this body of Christ. They could be formed only by Christ sending his spirit into them. And as through the physical body of our Lord, it was God who taught. It was God who governed. It was God who sanctified. So through this new body of Christ, this church, this new kahal, this new people of God, the new Israel, he will teach, he will govern, he will sanctify. This is the church. See, it's a long way from an institution. Sometime pick up the Acts of the Apostles and read the story of the conversion of St. Paul. St. Paul was a member of the old Kahal, old Israel. And he therefore would not accept the revelation of the new Kahal, and he started to persecute the church. The time is well within ten years after the ascension of our blessed Lord into heaven. That's very important to remember. Now the church is beginning to spread through the entire Roman Empire. And Paul decides to go into Syria and to persecute the church there in Damascus. By this time, the early members of the church were very much disturbed by this learned Saul, for that was his Jewish name. I'm sure that many members of the church in those days must have prayed to the good Lord that he would send a good coronary thrombosis to Paul. And they must have said... Dear Lord, send us someone to answer Saul. He heard their prayers. He sent someone to answer Saul. He sent Paul. That was his Roman name. So on his way to Damascus, a light shines round about him. He's thrown from his beast. And he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 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 Why does our Lord say that? He's in heaven. How can anybody persecute him? No wonder St. Paul asks, Who art thou? 
And our Lord answers, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Saul must have thought within himself, after all, I'm only persecuting the members of the church in Damascus. How can I be persecuting you? How? If someone steps on your foot, do not your lips complain? Someone strikes your body, does not your head protest? Christ, the Son of the living God, is the head of the mystical body of the church. Therefore, when anyone struck that body, they struck him. And that is why our Lord protested. What then is the church? It's the people of God. His God. His ecclesia, his body, prolonged through the centuries, in us, his poor members. The church is the mystery of God in the world for the salvation of the world. You are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. My dear friends, I want to thank you for joining me for uh, this opportunity that we've had together to just learn our faith through the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And I pray that you will have a blessed week. And so uh, may I remind you to read your Bible, say your prayers, and of course to uh, be of good cheer. My dear friends, please uh, visit our website at bishopsheentoday.com and there you will find hundreds of audio recordings and videos of Archbishop Sheen's talks over the years. And uh, let us continue to uh, meditate on the uh, scriptures, especially the book of Numbers, with that beautiful passage that says, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the good Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.